Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, stuntman in a leather jacket. <laughs> and singer, apparently. <laughs> I feel like I can imagine that, though. Did you do you own a leather jacket? Did you have one like when we were in high school? Maybe I think my, more? Yeah, I did. My grandfather used to like to buy them for me. I like the faux leather now because I want to be kind to the animals. But also, don't you think that could have been like a pop punk punk song in like the late 90s? Stunt man in a leather jacket. I guess so. Yeah, I feel like that's more of like a, I don't know, like a ska song, maybe. I don't I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's that counts. That counts. Yeah. All right. So from ska, we are moving. Uh, We're not talking about ska. However, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1996 And in this episode, we're talking about the future cult classic of 1996, David Cronenberg's Crash. Not, of course, to be confused with the Oscar-winning film Crash from, I think it's 2005, which... 2004, I thought. Oh, well, whatever. Whatever year it is, it's terrible, and I hate it. (laughs) Um, But this movie, I do not hate. And I think I I don't remember what else we were maybe considering for this episode, but I think I was arguing in favor of covering this movie. And uh, having watched it again, I am kind of uh, terrified to (laughs) see what Jason thinks of it because it's certainly a unique film. And uh, it was very controversial at the time that it was released it was there were attempts to ban it in uh in the UK which failed it did not get banned uh it was released in the US uh in versions that were rated NC17 as well as a, a slightly edited version that was rated R it deals with the the sexual fetish around car crashes um and i think there's like a word for it that i symphorophilia there you go i'm sure you pronounced that correctly uh, so it deals symphorophilia that I don't know. Sounds right. I don't know. It deals with sounds that. Good. Whatever that is, that's what this movie is about. And and the reason they wanted to ban it is, is in England is they said that's not really a like that's not a real thing, right? Was that one uh, of the reasons? I don't know. Maybe that is a reason. I mean, and I can believe that. And and some of the the reviews that I read uh, bring up that idea that it's not a real thing. And and interestingly enough. Uh, we'll get to the reviews, and I don't know if it's in the parts that I quoted, but the idea that that these this fetish is not real was brought up both as like a positive thing and as a negative thing about this movie, depending on who the critic was. So they either thought that was like a clever aspect of this or a failing of this movie. So it depends on how you look at it. So uh, with all that controversy, it did okay box office wise. It grossed $23.2 million on its budget of $9 million, which is not bad, especially for a very, very niche kind of movie. I mean, I feel like best case scenario, this movie is definitely not for everyone. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine anyone involved in the making of this movie thinking it was going to be a big mainstream hit or anything like that. So the fact that it made money at all is pretty impressive, honestly. It won a special jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996, which is basically just a made-up award when they want to give a movie, like, kind of recognize that it's notable, but not give it an actual award. They make up, it was not the grand jury prize winner. That, of course, was Secrets and Lies, which we talked about in a previous episode. But it was given a special jury prize. And I noted, uh, I think in Wikipedia, it mentioned that uh, the special jury prize at Cannes has not yet been awarded again since. <laughs> I noted that as well, Josh. Also, so this was uh, Coppola, who was the head of the jury at this. Ah, uh, yes. So, I mean, I think, yeah, it got it got respect from people like that. I think uh, Martin Scorsese eventually later on named it on one of his lists of the best movies of the decade. Uh, yes, um, he did. And, and number uh, eight of the year. Right. So there's a movie respected by other filmmakers and and. Uh, reviled by a lot of audiences, it seems like. However, it did also win uh, six Genie Awards in Canada, the top film awards in Canada. It was nominated for eight, including Best Picture, which it didn't win, but it did win six awards, including Best Director for David Cronenberg. And my favorite award that it won was the Best Alternative Adult Feature Film 
at the AVN Awards in 1998 for some reason. But uh, if you don't know the AVN Awards here in Vegas, we are very familiar with them because they take place here. And it's the the porn industry. It's their awards. I wonder what it was up against, Josh. I don't know. You know, I maybe I should have looked that up. I assume that's some sort of award that's given to like mainstream stuff that represents sexuality. A lot of sex, yeah. But yeah. I don't know. But I did. I did like that. I'm pretty sure this is the only movie that we'll ever talk about that won an AVN award. And and related to that, I will say that this movie at the moment is a bit is a bit hard to find. It's been released on DVD, but the DVD is out of print and it's not streaming anywhere. Um, there's a big new uh, like restoration of it. I think that's set for a Blu-ray release later this year. But uh, both of us, I think, had a bit of trouble tracking it down. And uh, I ended up watching this movie on a porn website. So really, <laughs> yes, it was on a porn site. It was on a porn site. What I didn't porn realize site, it. Josh? Uh, Xvideos.com. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a famous one. I, I yeah. wouldn't know anything about it, but I've heard that's a famous right. one. Right. I I didn't even realize. <laughs> I had just kind of looked around online to try to find it, and and I I found this link that worked, and I started watching it, and I looked in the corner. I was like, you know what? This is a porn site. It's definitely a porn website. So. Hey, Dave, what's your favorite porn site? <laughs> <laughs> How can I pick? <laughs> uh, and and I mean, this movie is it's not it's not porn, but it certainly is very very sexually explicit. Uh, in fact, even I had seen it before, and I was sort of surprised at how sexually explicit it really is watching it this time. I think I hadn't remembered all the details. It definitely divided critics. Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs up. Gene Siskel gave it a thumbs down. They had a very spirited discussion about it on the show. Which at, Josh watched on xvideos.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> X, xvideos.com, home of lots of Siskel and Ebert yeah. episodes. So sexy to see them in their blazers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, essentially this the, the discussion it involves like Roger Ebert basically calling Gene Siskel a prude for not liking this movie, which I thought was quite amusing. And Roger Ebert loved it, or maybe not, maybe that's the wrong word for it, but he had a lot of admiration for it. And uh, and he's one of the people who referenced the idea of whether this is real. Uh, in his review, he says, Crash is about characters entranced by a sexual fetish that, in fact, no one has. David Cronenberg has made a movie that is pornographic in form, but not in result. Take out the cars, the scars, the crutches and scabs and wounds and substitute the usual props of sex films and you'd have a porno movie. But Crash is anything but pornographic. It's about the human mind, about the way we grow enslaved by the particular things that turn us on and forgive ourselves our trespasses. It's like a porno movie made by a computer. It downloads gigabytes of information about sex. It discovers our love affair with cars and it combines them in a mistaken algorithm. The result is challenging, courageous, and original, a dissection of the mechanics of pornography. I admired it, although I cannot say I liked it. It goes on a bit too long. Afterward, I found myself wishing a major director would lavish this kind of love and attention on a movie about my fetishes. <laughs> so, which, I will now, which I will now list for you alphabetically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I always enjoy when Roger Ebert brings in his own weird personal reflections to his movies. And I thought that was pretty much perfect the way he wraps that up. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's where I got that from. Not that, that, not that it was almost banned because, you know, this wasn't a quote unquote real fetish, but because Roger Ebert had said that it's not a real fetish, but we don't know that it could be a real fetish. You know? I think it absolutely could be. I mean, the one mm -hmm. thing about, uh, if you watch xvideos.com, you can learn that <laughs> anything really is a fetish, um, yeah. even if you think it's not. So, um, yeah. And again, I think that like that came up in other reviews too. And, and for Ebert, obviously that's a positive, the idea that this is a movie, not really about sex, per se, or about a fetish per se, but just about the idea of obsession and the idea of becoming consumed with something that's clearly bad for you and dangerous, but being unable to resist it. And which is something that I agree with him on. I think that's a fascinating aspect of this movie. Uh, Gene Siskel did not think so. And sadly, they did not discuss Roger Ebert's own sexual <laughs> fetishes on, hey, on that hey, episode. Hey, Dave, what's your sexual fetish? <laughs> Moving on. I, we, we discovered in the last episode, David's uh, Dave's sexual fetish is uh, ghosts who bulge through walls, maybe? Yeah, uh, that, there you go. 
Yeah. Something with is the there, Is there a lot of that on X videos? Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, yeah. like I said, you can find whatever you want there. I, I want to disagree <laughs> with one point, though. I mean, yes. there, it, look, I, I get I get all that with the mind and, you know, the obsession. But to say that it's not bordering on pornographic, I think is almost unfair to the word pornographic because anything can be pornographic in if that's what, you know, kind of turns you on. And in this case, there's a lot of uh, graphic sexual Simula- simulations here so i would say it is almost pornographic and not in a negative way just in a right. you know contextual way. yeah no i agree i think the idea that he's trying to get across is that the, se- the, the, the that while the movie is very sexually explicit that the sex scenes are not necessarily designed to be arousing and yeah i, I agree with that well as he said it's and it's only a matter of time but at some point a computer or robot will make a uh, sex movie for all of us. I think that's probably already happened. We should look that up. But I think that at least if, if not make the movie, at least like generate the script. I'm pretty sure that's happened already. Yeah. It's a good thing. None of us ever worked on a soft core about a program that involves uh, sex robots and sex programs coming to life. No oh, one would, no man. one would ever do that. So. No v- virtual <laughs> Vegas, right? Is that it? Or virtual- I, I, I never, both of them probably. I never yeah. worked on either of them. No, no, you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, Mr. Cronenberg, who will now rattle audiences even more powerfully than he did with Dead Ringers or Naked Lunch, cannot be dismissed as a twisted panderer, despite the clear leanings of Crash in that direction. As Mr. Ballard did, that's J.G. Ballard, author of the novel that this is based on. As Mr. Ballard did, he envisions a work of sexually charged science fiction, the Crash characters sleepwalk through this story in a state of futuristic numbness, seeking extreme forms of sensation because familiar feelings have long since failed them. It's a chilling, ghastly possibility that manages to exert a grim fascination. So the creepy rituals and joyless couplings of Crash do amount to a form of daring, or they would have if the film had had more passion of its own. But Mr. Cronenberg, for once oddly inhibited by brazen subject matter, has made a meticulously stylized and controlled film that leaves many of its characters' ideas muffled and lacks the true audacity its material demands. A film that shows its characters in such a debased and disturbing light had better also show the courage of its convictions. And I I can't... Like To call this movie inhibited, I think, is insane, but that's, that's the way she sees it. I mean, I can see her point but also isn't that part of the point of these characters is that they need this to get off so to speak so everything else about them is going to be kind of dry and droll you know as as we've seen with uh james spader and sex lies and videotapes right you know like he is i'm not going to say inhibited but he's kind of uh under the radar until he gets to his extreme comfort zone yeah, I definitely think that's the idea here is that these characters are maybe sort of detached, not inhibited, but they they can't feel anything. And that's why they resort to these further and further extreme forms of sexual expression is because that's the only way that they can get off anymore. And as, as we see in the beginning of the movie, when James Spader and Deborah Kara Unger's characters are having sort of more conventional sex, I guess we should say, they're really not like able to get off on it. And it, it it's only when they go in these more extreme directions that they can feel anything. So I, I think that's one of the points of this movie that maybe Janet Maslin uh, either missed or didn't uh, didn't agree with there. Owen Gleiberman, I think Owen Gleiberman, maybe not in the portion that I have here, but I think elsewhere in his review, he's another person who said that this is not a real fetish. And for him, that was like a criticism of the movie. Uh, he said... Cronenberg wants us to view these people as bold avatars of a new godless age, one that mingles technology, destruction, and flesh. The folly of Crash is that he's so intent on locking the characters into their death trip fetishism that he locks the audience out. You could blame the bloodless monotony of Crash on Cronenberg's portentous staging, which reduces his actors to glazed auto-erotomatons. (laughs) <laughs> or you could blame it on the difficulties of adapting Ballard's novel, a bad vibe hallucination in which the author's surreal ramblings take precedence over drama. The truth, though, is far more basic. As much as Crash would have you believe it, there simply is no link between eroticism and car crashes. The theme is utterly preposterous, if undeniably attention-getting. By exploiting it for controversy, Cronenberg has made not the riskiest movie of his career, but the phoniest. 
And again, I don't think it matters whether this is real or not. The point is that it's real to the characters. In the movie. Yeah. Oh, I'm a movie reviewer. I don't like anything that's not based on something that's real. That's why I see movies, you know, because they're all real, like Godzilla. Like Godzilla is a real movie and King Kong's a real movie and Star Wars is a real movie and The Lord of the Rings is a real movie. And I could keep going because I'm a movie reviewer. But how dare you sexualize a car crash? Yeah, I don't appreciate your <laughs> slander on movie reviewers there. But um... I'm just saying his point is uh, uh, meek, uh, moot, unnecessary and unrealistic. Yeah, I know. I agree with you completely. And I think, again, the idea of whether this is a real fetish or not, whether we could track down like a real person who actually feels this way does not matter. That's Dave, the point. you're the producer. Did you do it? <laughs> I, I tracked them down and they're coming up in segment three. <laughs> All right. That was really a, a missed opportunity for us to get a car crash fetishist on this episode. Uh, but no, I agree with you, Jason. I think that 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 Owen Gleiberman completely misses the point of this movie. And I don't think it's just being trotted out for the sake of controversy. I mean, I'm sure they knew as they were making this movie that it would be controversial, but right. I don't think that's the only point of the movie. And I think he's kind of missed the point there. But he was not the only one who had that perspective. Uh, again, Gene Siskel would be right there with him. I mean, again, I, I don't I think it doesn't matter. It's yeah. You know, maybe it matters just a little bit, but really it doesn't because you're exploring the characters in this world and in this construct. Uh, what was that he said about the staging was bland? I thought I thought the staging was rather good in this film, especially the, you know, the, the car chases or car drivings, if you will. They're not chases per se, but foreplay, the car foreplay. Yeah, if you, if you want to say that. So I thought that they were really good, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think this movie is very well uh, constructed from a visual standpoint. Uh, there's that scene when when James Spader and Holly Hunter's characters are first taking a drive together and you you see those shots of, of him like playing with his seatbelt that's like constraining him and it's got that great angle like above his shoulder. Behind or whatever. Him, yeah. yeah, it's really creative. So I, I, I disagree uh, with, with basically this whole assessment here, but I wanted to include it because it was certainly representative of a, a strong school of thought on this movie. No, no, um, that's fair, Josh. Totally yeah. fair. Thank you. So, uh, so Jason, had you ever seen this before? Uh, had I, so I remember parts of it very clearly, but I don't remember the whole movie. So I don't know. Had you perhaps watched some clips on xvideos.com? I don't know where I would have seen it. Cause it, cause it's like, did I rent it? And just like, not like it at the time. Did I, but I mean, I'm, I feel like I must've watched it and then just maybe repressed it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certain parts of this movie are extremely memorable. Like I said, I had seen it and I think at the time, this is certainly a movie that got a lot of press and a lot of attention. So I'm sure I read about it and thought, Oh, I got to check this out. And I had liked other David Cronenberg movies I think I was really interested in exploring like notable horror directors. And of course, before this movie, he made a lot of really uh, fascinating and important horror movies like The Fly and Scanners and his early films like Shivers and Rabid. So I was very interested. And I guess I probably rented this as a teenager. I guess my parents allowed me to see it or didn't mm -hmm. know that I was watching it. You watched it uh, with them, and, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But um <laughs> I, I, re I remember liking it at the time, along with a lot of other David Cronenberg movies that I liked. And he was one of my favorite directors, uh, probably when I was a teenager and, and through college. And I still think he's he's great. So I liked it. But, but going back to it this time, like I said, I think I had maybe also repressed some of the uh, very sexually explicit elements of this movie. But certainly the scene where, where James Spader's character, who is also named James, where he... Uh, penetrates the very vaginal looking leg wound on Rosanna Arquette's character. Yeah. That scene I had remembered. I, I was, I was waiting for that scene to come up as I was watching it. Dave, you ever penetrate a leg wound? Moving on. <laughs> had you, had you ever seen this movie, Dave? I am sure I watched it a long time ago. I, I kind of remember having a, uh, 
like a recorded VHS copy of it, you know, not a pre-recorded, like on a, a blank tape, um, which makes it all the dirtier. <laughs> like a camcorder, like someone had a camcorder and recorded <laughs> yeah. themselves watching it and gave you the recording. Your, it's been a tape, long time, though. Your, your tape was unlabeled and kind of <laughs> shelved backwards in between like the Airbud movies or something like that. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I hey. couldn't find it to rewatch it. I looked, but it was tough. <laughs> Josh, uh, few more points because you were talking about like this very divergent uh, swath of opinions where some people hated it and some people liked it. Yeah. The Cahiers du Cinema, as you know, I'm a oh. charter member of. Yes, you are. Picked it as the best film of 1996. Uh, I did not agree with them. It was a heated argument, but that's okay. And uh, the Village Voice in their uh, best films of the 90s ranked it 35th, Josh. So also, uh, I th- I do like the fact that there was at least one academic paper written about it, the crash controversy, censorship campaigns, and film reception by Wallflower Press, Martin Baker, Jane Arthurs, and Ramaswamy Harindranath. Did you did you read that paper, Jason? Uh, I read it and, and wrote a counter paper. <laughs> yeah. I bet there are quite a few academic papers written about this movie, we'll, really. We'll put a link in the show notes to your counter yeah, paper. Yeah, your, Jason's uh, <laughs> dissertation on this film. <laughs> subsection of x videos (laughs) yeah there you go all right well we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on crash Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1996 we're talking about our future cult classic pick David Cronenberg's Crash And as I was saying before, I can't remember what else we were considering, but I definitely was pushing for us to discuss this movie in this episode. And uh, I feel like I've gotten some sense, but Jason, do you you feel like I made the right decision here? Are you satisfied with with our choice to cover this one? I am satisfied, Josh. And uh, that doesn't mean I have to like it or love it, but I definitely think it is a sub niche, shall we call it? So I definitely think it it fits where it needs to be in the in the cult classic realm. And um, not surprisingly, it is a sexual fetish film that stars James Spader. Yes. He's <laughs> the second sexual fetish film starring James Spader that we've discussed on this podcast. We're coming sex. for you, secretary. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> after sex, lies and videotape. So, okay. But did you like it, Jason? So I kind of agreed with some of the reviews. Like I, w- I really liked the first hour of it. And then I just thought it meandered. And um, I think the last part of it, it just, it just fell off a cliff, so to speak, you know, like, it's just <laughs> like, okay, where is this going? We know these, we know these characters, we know what they're into, but it didn't really go anywhere, you know? And then it was like, okay, here's a big car crash. And now some of our characters died, but it, it just kind of uh, was a little formless, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it doesn't really have much of a plot. Like, and I was waiting again, not having really remembered as many details. I was waiting for it to turn into more of like a thriller later on because we have, uh, I mean, to sort of summarize, we've got James Spader and Deborah Kara Unger as this married couple, uh, James and Catherine, and they have an open relationship of some kind and are clearly seeking out sexual thrills elsewhere, but are a bit dissatisfied. And his character gets into a car crash and uh, someone is killed. This uh, man is killed and his wife, played by Holly Hunter, Dr. Remington, is uh, is driving the other car. And James ends up getting sort of a, having a connection to her of some kind. And they start, uh, I mean, I don't know if you would call it an affair, but she, she really draws him into this a subculture. Tryst. A tryst, yes. I mean, it's not an affair because the husband's dead, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and also because because James and his wife uh, clearly are open about the fact that they, they right. have sex with other people. I just want to, and I want you to continue kind of describing it. But I, that scene is extremely memorable, shocking, and uh, just visceral. That scene where uh, they crash, you know, uh, the cars crash because you're seeing this uh, the male figure who dies like fly through this windshield right right up to james spader uh, in his car and you know the shock on his face there's a dead man right through his windshield and then uh we see the passenger in the other car which is holly hunter and like she just like opens her shirt and like rubs her nipple and it's like she's 
clearly sexually aroused. And that's like the first inlet that we've seen into this fetish. And it, it really is like, wow, what is going on? You know? <laughs> yeah, I agree because we, we've seen before then that, that James and Catherine obviously are sexually adventurous, but there's no sense at really that they're into this whole car crash thing. Although it does open, they, they, they definitely have a, a relationship to vehicles because the, the first scene involves Catherine having sex with this random dude that we never see again. And it's, it's in an airport hangar. And the first thing she does is she rubs her nipple on the wing of the airplane. So obviously she has some sort of thing for machinery, but uh, but you're right. That is that is a shocking because it's such a violent thing. This guy has just died. Her husband has just been violently thrown through a windshield and is now dead. And the first thing that she does is she flashes her breast to the man in the other car. So that is certainly a shocking moment. And she draws both of them into this subculture of the car crash fetish that's led by this character Vaughn, played by Elias Coteus. And that was where I what I was saying is that I was kind of expecting it to become almost like a thriller where maybe he's targeting them because he clearly gets off on the idea of being injured or perhaps even dying in a car crash and that he's pushing James and Catherine towards this and that he would turn into a, almost like a villain or something. And that doesn't happen. They go right along with him and there's never really, there's not much of a suspense aspect to this movie. I mean, Jason, you were talking about the the car chases sort of, or the car foreplay, we, we could call it or whatever. Um, and I don't know if we could call those suspenseful. So, I mean, I agree with you that there's not much of like a, a build of the story exactly. It doesn't uh, climax, let's say, but I, I didn't necessarily mind that. I, I think I would have been more annoyed if they had tried to make it into like a, a basic instinct or some other kind of erotic thriller that was really popular around this time. Uh, yeah, well, I don't, I think you used a good word because you said that there's not necessarily suspense. But there's a ton of tension. The, the whole movie, you're tense watching it, right? Yeah. And it do, it does feel like a little bit of an erotic thriller. And and part of that is like, man, what a good score by Howard Shore. He yes, really sets the mood, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it does feel like a thriller. I think that was why I was expecting, especially because Elias Coteus, who gives a really good performance as this guy who is scary in a lot of ways. He's clearly unhinged and he's sleazy and it would not at all surprise you if he just straight up kills the main characters. And so I think it, it, it builds that expectation that maybe it will be kind of a thriller, but I like that it subverts that expectation and that even though they're maybe a little more subdued or they seem a little more rational, that, that James and Catherine are just as into this fetish as Vaughn is. And even once he dies, you know, like deliberately kills himself in a car crash, they're just as into it still as they were to before. Well, yeah, because that's like the end goal, right, is to kill yourself in a car crash. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Is that the end goal exactly? Or is it more to end up like Rosanna Arquette's character and just be kind of like injured and disfigured? but able to continue on in your sexualization of car crash. Well, I took it as the end goal because, you know, the last scene where he, where Spader causes, uh, where James causes Catherine to crash and she goes, you know, I guess I'm okay, I'm okay. And he goes, maybe next, maybe next one, which is like a throwback to the beginning of like when they're talking about sex and like, you know, oh, I didn't get off, neither did I, maybe next one, like, you know, he's he's like, darling, are you OK? And, you know, yeah, I guess I'm OK. Maybe next one. And then they have sex. I feel like that is the goal is for them to die in the quote unquote blaze of glory that they see this to be. Yeah, I think you can definitely interpret it that way. To me, I wasn't sure if he meant I mean, because she says she's OK and she seems to be essentially uninjured aside from like a cut on her forehead. And again, that maybe what he means is. Maybe next time you'll mangle your leg or you'll break your arm or, or end up in some way like that Rosanna Arquette character or even like James Spader, like James ends up in the beginning of the movie after his car crash with Dr. Remington, where he survives, but he's got this horrible leg injury and this, this massive like metal thing on his leg that I suppose maybe is a real medical device, but really just looks like a yeah. sexual fetish thing. No, it, it is. I think like when like a football player like gets their knee blown out or something, breaks bones or something. That's what they need to, It's it looks like what, what you would call like a medical halo for your knee. You right. know? So but, I, but, I think that's a real thing. I, and I believe that it is, but you can't deny that it also looks like a sexual fetish device. I mean, anything can look like a sexual fetish device, right, Dave? 
That's what I always say. Did yeah, you he, watch this, Dave, in, in uh, the lead up to this? or I, I tried to find it. I couldn't. Yeah, I, I found did. some clips online, but... You should have gone to xvideos.com. <laughs> I know. That's the lesson of this podcast. It really, <laughs> hey, it really is. Josh, we talked to, uh, you know, we've mentioned a lot of the actors. I love the acting in this movie. You know, Spader, we know, is the king of detachment. And Holly Hunter, always so interesting. But I really, really liked watching uh, Elias Coteas and uh, Deborah Kara Unger. Like, they were so interesting. I, I mean, and we've seen a good amount of him. But, like, she, we don't really... You know, she's a working actress, but we don't really, like, think of her as uh, anything beyond that, I guess, you know? Yeah, I feel like this was maybe the height of her career. And what was interesting to me is I feel like this kind of movie is the is a, is the kind of thing that could, like, ruin a career that because it's so sexually ex- explicit and crazy and it was so controversial that, that actors are, like, toxic afterwards. And obviously that was not the case. And I don't think that's the reason that she hasn't had a big career. I mean, she's mainly kind of a B-movie actor and it just never took off for her. But I was thinking of, like, Elizabeth Berkley in Showgirls, for example, where taking that big risk and doing this very sexually explicit role, like, essentially ruined her career. And that's not the case at all here. Uh, I mean, as you said, James Spader is known for playing these kind of sex weirdos, but Holly Hunter is like an icon of respectable acting and and nobody holds this movie against her at all. I think uh, what part of that is like, no offense to Elizabeth Berkeley, but the performances here are maybe just to level up from what she was able to capture in yeah. showgirls so yeah that's true but um I, I did think that was that was an interesting thing and I but I agree with you I think Elias Coteus is is so good in this movie I mean he really gets the like creepiness of that character but also the allure of that character you can see why so many people are drawn to him even though he's this really disturbing figure and Deborah Kerr Unger too I mean she's more on that like detached level but you can you can see how Catherine is sort of removed from everything in life and why she is so drawn also to this idea even though she isn't the one initially brought in it's it's James who's brought in by Holly Hunter's character and by uh by Vaughn but she fully embraces it eventually yeah. as well yeah i thought she played that really well especially cuz when you see her like say mid movie uh, having sex with James, you know, and like what turns her on is talking about the Vaughn characters like uh, scarred body or, you know, what his ejaculate must smell like and this and that. And like she really goes for this level of uncomfortability that really, really works as like that's her sexual, you know, turn on um, as opposed to her daily life, which is uh, very mundane and, and boring for her, it seems like. so. Right. And the sex between her and James is also kind of mundane and boring. And the right. only way they make it exciting, she wants to talk about, not only talk about Vaughn, but she wants to talk about the idea of James having sex with Vaughn. And while right. he's having sex with her, she just wants to think about him having sex with Vaughn. And they do, and they do have that scene, which you got to credit them for, because this is the mid-90s and having an explicit homosexual uh, sex scene was not very prevalent in the 90s, shall we say. Yeah, sadly, I was, uh, and that was one scene where I didn't remember that it was actually that explicit. And I think sadly, like having a sex scene between two men might've been a bigger risk than having a sex scene with a car, uh, unfortunately (laughs) at the time. No one, no one has sex with a car. Just to that, be clear, that is true. They they caress the cars in very yeah. sexualized ways. Yeah, there's a great scene with James and uh, Rosanna Arquette's character at the car dealership. You know, where she keeps rubbing up against the car in an extremely sexual fashion, and uh, Gabrielle's her name, and, uh, and and like the car dealer is like first confused and then turned on, and then they end up like breaking the uh, fabric of the car and he, he immediately is scared that he's going to get in trouble. That seems really good, I think. That is a great scene. And you you feel for that poor car salesman who just wants to sell a car and is being like unwittingly used as a sexual object by these two people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's so strong for about an hour. And then I just, it really just tails off. Like nothing really happens. Um, and, you know, until those big crashes at the end. And I don't know that, that kind of bothered me. The only other thing that I didn't understand was 
how they were always in the same parking lot, James and his wife and uh, Vaughn. It's like, wait, how is he always in the same parking lot as you two? You know, well, I mean, so. he's following them. They clearly establish early on in the movie that he's following them around. He's taking photos of them right. without their knowledge. I mean, and that's like part of his creepiness. Sure, but like when they're leaving work. Like in his cars there, it just seems like he's coming from like a neighboring building or something like, oh, I got out of work now too, you know, and I don't know, I mean, that, that was a little do you, unclear. Do you think he works? What is Vaughn's like day job? Uh, he doesn't seem like a guy who's like putting on a uniform and going to a job during the day. Yeah, what um, his day job could be... Um, I mean, mechanic or <laughs> something like that. But, I feel like if that was the case, that we would have incorporated it into yeah. the movie though. Hey, um, no, what about that... Um, great introduction to his character where you think he's like a nurse or an orderly helping Dr. Remington as she's recovering from her injuries. And he walks up to James and just like really uh, without ever having those two met, like he examines James's wounds in a very up close and like not a, a way that would just make you feel like, yo, dude, back up or whatnot, you know? Yeah. He's like caressing the wounds really. And I mean, that is a great scene. And I think that shows you right away that you're right. Most people would say, Hey, back off. Who are you? And why are you touching me? But James is all for it because he's clearly, you know, they've identified him correctly as someone who's going to be interested in this subculture yeah. of the car crashes and the sexual fetishes. And one other thing I wanted to bring up, which to me might've been the height of the movie, I think, is the um, restaging of the James Dean crash, which we see that's, you know, that's that's the big project for Vaughn of that. Uh, as we get more to know him is he's restaging these crashes and uh, he's using stuntmen to drive each car and make it as accurate as possible. And one of the stuntmen has a great, great stuntman name, Seagrave. Like what a great name for a stuntman, you know? So, um, and like the way they film that and they just keep backing the cars up further and further. And it's like, it's really, really makes you uneasy to watch that, you know, and then they crash into each other and the Department of Transportation comes to break it up and they all like scatter into the woods. I feel like that might have been that. And then the uh, crash at towards the end where like they kind of go over the shoulder and are and Vaughn's taking pictures of the whole thing were the two most uncomfortable yet striking scenes in the film, along with the one we mentioned earlier, introducing Holly Hunter's character. Yeah, I mean, that restaging of the James Dean crash is great. And the idea that they are going to want to restage a bunch of crashes, they then prepare to restage the uh, Jane Mansfield crash. And I noticed, I haven't read the book, but uh, J.G. Ballard's book, which came out in 1973, one of the main storylines in that book is that Vaughn is obsessed with, he wants to actually have a car crash with Elizabeth Taylor. And yeah. It's like tracking her movements so that he can like crash into her at some point. And kill her. Yeah. You mentioned that James Manfield crash and um, he's planning it with uh, Seagrave and Seagrave's got like, you know, you see this insight into his character and he's like, you know, you got to play Jane Manfield. And he's like, then I want really big tits, like tits out to ears. What he says uh, almost word for word, I think. So, uh, yeah. And and then um, when we see that crash, that they're that he's scoping out and, and taking pictures of it's Seagrave dressed as Jane's man, Jane Mansfield. And he's like, you couldn't have waited for me. Oh, you actually did it with the dog. That's great. Like it does not want you to have any comfort at all. No. And that scene I think is great too, because prior to that, we've seen all the car crash stuff we've seen are these characters who are into the fetish and they're, they're staging it themselves for themselves. But when we we get to that point where they pull off the side of the road, they see this massive crash and they're very excited and they start, Vaughn starts taking pictures and they're all like voyeuristically looking at it. And Catherine sits down next to this woman who has like broken glass protruding, yeah. protruding from her face. And you realize like those people are like severely injured or possibly dead and they're yeah. not involved in this fetish at all. And yet our main characters are like using these people to get off. And right. it's very unsettling. Yeah. And that kills Seagrave. And then later we see Vaughn get killed in his own accident. Uh, I, I agree. It is unsettling. Um, one criticism I have is like, I, I really like Holly Hunter and I think she's very good in this movie, but she just disappears for like the last 40 yeah. minutes until like yeah. one scene at the end. And like, that really that really took it down a notch for me because I was invested in her as a character. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think she is more of a, like James and Catherine, she's more of a quote, like normal person kind of character. And you feel like she has layers. I mean, she's a doctor, like how does that relate? And she does kind of disappear in the second half of the movie. And that's a little disappointing. I don't know if there's any uh, deleted scenes or anything like that that give you more. Cause she shows up again, basically just to have sex with Rosanna Arquette's character in a brief scene. Um, and then you don't see her again. So that was, yeah, that was a little disappointing. I agree. It, it does have a certain shapelessness to it. And I yeah. think that's, that's partially adapting a novel that again, I haven't read, but is kind of just like impressionistic and not really plot driven. And that's a tough thing to do. And Josh, I would say of uh, all the main street and films I've seen, this uh, has the most finger banging and the most explicit finger banging. There's a, there's a lot of finger banging scenes in this one, Josh. There are indeed a lot of those scenes. Yes, yes. It's very, very explicit. There's nudity of all kinds in this movie and, and very graphic sex that, again, I think going back to what Ebert said is very graphic, but not necessarily meant to arouse the viewer. It's no, all it's very not. like weirdly clinical and almost like watching aliens have sex or something like that. And so, and part of it is to do the opposite, to make the viewer uncomfortable. Like, you know, there's this scene where James and Catherine have sex and like, you know, they're, they've covered her breasts with the pillow and you're seeing like her vaginal area in a very not sexy way. And like the focus is on all the stuff she's talking about, which is Vaughn's scarred body and yeah, I think it is to make you uncomfortable more than anything else. Yeah, and I think it succeeds. And for some people, I think in a way the negative and positive reactions to this movie are largely similar. Is For some people, they're uncomfortable and they don't think that the movie uh, is doing anything other than like pushing buttons. And I think for people who like the movie, the discomfort is a very effective way of, of exploring the themes. And and for me, I think that's, that's where I fall. I, I definitely felt uncomfortable, but I thought it was rewarding in the way that it did that. And I'm with you on that. I just, I just, like I said, it just, it just became so shapeless. It was tough to, to keep my enthusiasm for it. Yeah, that's fair. It is tough to hold enthusiasm for a long time. That was meant to be some sort of sexual joke. That failed. <laughs> I, I'm just really excited to find out what you guys are going to rate this out of. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do it. Uh, should we rate it out of, um, V- vaginal looking leg li- li- wounds. Yeah, I was going to say gaping <laughs> leg wounds. So we're yes, <laughs> we, we were on the same page with that. Yeah. So good. good. Uh, I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. I like this movie. I think it's not always successful, but it's always doing something interesting. I have it at two and a half. It, dro- it dropped for me in that last half. It was a three. I uh, and I agree with you. Um, a two and a half. But you, if you watch it, it's totally a worthwhile watch. Yeah, I, I agree. Dave, you should uh, track that one down and give it a watch. So, I, I'd uh, like to. Yeah, we need to know how many gaping leg wounds you give it, Dave. <laughs> right. Maybe maybe have a date night with Gina and watch this one yeah. together. See how you can go I, to I the drive-in she, and watch like it. This one. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> All right, well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Crash. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about our future cult classic pick, David Cronenberg's Crash, which I think we agreed is an interesting movie and worth watching. So this was, I mean, despite its, its, I think, as I was alluding to, its potential to like destroy careers, this movie was maybe a turning point for Cronenberg in some ways that, that, got him more attention. I mean, he had done a lot of very acclaimed movies and successful movies before this, but I think maybe he was still known as sort of this genre filmmaker. And this is a very like serious art movie. And it it maybe helped him in this turn towards making even more serious and and well-regarded and even uh, Oscar-nominated movies like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises and A Dangerous Method, and yet continuing to explore these provocative themes and in some cases like sexually explicit themes. I mean, there's a very, very famous uh, kind of violent sex scene in A History of Violence, and Eastern Promises has a very famous like fight scene where the characters are completely Uh, naked. Yeah, the dudes are just slapping dongs against each other in a fight. 
Yeah, slapping dongs. I think that was the that was the direction that David Cronenberg gave to the actors. I mean, they were literally that was how they fought. No, that's not true. But there is a lot of flopping penises in that fight scene. There are. So, right, I think this was a point where David Cronenberg became this like major auteur filmmaker or at least got more into that place. And then he kind of he kind of dropped off. I mean, he continues to make movies that are provocative, but I think he's had he's talked about having trouble getting funding for his films. And then the last couple of things he made have been not, I think, that great. And like I said before, he was one of my favorite directors for a long time. Uh, Maps to the Stars is the last movie he made in 2014, and he hasn't done anything since then. So do you- He's done some acting since then. Yeah, he has. He's also, he's always a very quirky, he's sort of like Werner Herzog in that sense is that he's not really an actor, but he'll show up as like his own quirky persona. In, yeah. in in things and it's always fun to see him so, right and we're uh, seeing more of that with david lynch too now so yeah i think they they all fit in in that same place so do you have a favorite cronenberg yeah i think so and admittedly like this is the period i know like i should go back and watch a lot of the earlier stuff and the later later stuff i really haven't seen but i really love eastern promises i remember that as being just an excellent film yeah, that is great. And that was with Viggo Mortensen, who also he worked with on A History of Violence and A Dangerous Method. They had a long relationship together. And I agree. Eastern Promises is great. A History of Violence is great. From his slightly earlier period, I mean, The Fly, of course, is fantastic. Sure. And uh, I like Existence a lot, which was right. I think that was the next movie he made after Crash, as well as Spider with Ray Fiennes. That's kind of an underrated one that I like a lot. So, Do any of them have nearly as many uh, slapping dongs as Eastern Promises, though? I think that it had the higher highest proportion of dong dong slapping. Yeah, so now we know the most finger banging was Crash, and the most <laughs> dong slapping was Eastern Promises. You know, we could write an academic paper on David Cronenberg, Josh. Yeah, I don't know if dong slapping is an academic term though that you can use in a paper, but you could give it a shot. You have to introduce you can use new it in concepts. a podcast, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned James Spader, who is known for playing these kind of sex weirdos. Of course, the biggest example of that after this is Secretary, which is not nearly as explicit as this, but is definitely a movie about people with sexual fetishes who find each other and blossom because yeah, of it, I would say. and it's almost like he passed the torch to Maggie Gyllenhaal in that one, right? So <laughs> I guess so. Has she played a lot of sex weirdos? Uh, I, I'm not going to even call them sex weirdos. I'll call them fetishists, but yeah, I yeah. think so. But hey, speaking of that, you know, we covered Sex, Lies, and Videotape, his breakout of the sex fetish uh, world, and and uh, and probably his most successful. You know, with the uh, pandemic, Steven Soderbergh said he has written the, the real sequel to this film, and uh, maybe that is going to be on its way at some point in time. Yeah, I'd love to see the sequel to Sex, Lies, and Videotape someday from Steven Soderbergh. Maggie Gyllenhaal, I think, didn't she made that movie about the invention of the vibrator? I think she was in that one, so... That's, yeah, that's, the old, that's the about one. slapping uh, artificial dongs. I don't think you slap them together, though. I don't know. <laughs> we hey, really gotten off track here. We sure did, Josh. So uh, uh, one interesting point, and then I want to move forward, is um, the the one interesting bit of alternate casting I heard for Vaughn was going to be Michael Hutchins from NXS. Oh, had he ever acted before? I don't think I've ever seen him in a movie. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think Elias Coteus is great here. He's perfect for it. And as we mentioned, he's kind of, I mean, he's a very busy character actor. He's on TV. He's a regular on uh, Chicago PD and stuff like that. Not not a lot of stuff that's as daring as this, but certainly he's worked a lot. I feel like this could have been a breakout for him and for Deborah Kara Unger if it had been less of a niche thing, if it had gotten like as many Oscar nominations as it got genie nominations, for example, yeah. that just that just didn't happen. But I think Elias Coteus really hit big about two years later with uh, or was it even the same year? The Thin Red Line, was that 96 or was that 98? I think that was 98. Uh, yeah, he was great in that. And uh, I mean, he did Gattaca around this time, which is an amazing movie. So, you know, do you have any uh, other, you know, we, we know these four leads really well. Do you have any... Uh, like hidden gem movies for any of them, like a Rosanna Arquette movie someone should go back and see? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some, but I can't think of any uh, offhand. I mean, Holly Hunter has been in in so many great movies and she's yeah. always a highlight of stuff. Even even in movies that are not great, she's, she's often 
a and, highlight for it. I, I remember, of course, I remember Elias Coteus as uh, Casey Jones in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Yeah, I agree with you. That was important, carrying the yes. hockey stick and other various uh, sporting goods on his back. Yes. Those movies, because I was, I was just looking up filmographies like Rosanna Arquette. We mentioned that Scorsese had this ranked like eighth. Uh, on his list of the top 10 of 96. Go watch After Hours from the, uh, well, I think, 1985 with that Scorsese directed with uh, Rosanna Arquette. Coteus, we mentioned. Holly Hunter, agree. She's always awesome. How about uh, how about Top of the Lake, the miniseries from New Zealand? Yeah, oh, she's, she's great. great she's in great in Top of the Lake and uh, in the first season of that. And that's a great series. I never saw the second season. I know it was, it was kind of not as well regarded, but uh, that is excellent. And I have not seen After Hours, so certainly that's yeah. something that I should watch. Uh, the only other legacy I was going to mention is J.G. Ballard, the author of the novel. There have been some other. He's, he's, he's very much known for these weird kind of sci-fi-ish novels. The biggest or sort of highest profile adaptation of his work after this was High Rise uh, from Ben Wheatley, which starred uh, Tom Hiddleston, which I thought was not great, but it, it definitely had a very Cronenberg-y feel to it. It's very similar to, I think, Shivers, the early Cronenberg movie, uh, which is also about like a, a high rise where uh, strange things start happening. And J.G. Ballard, also the source material for Steven Spielberg's uh, Empire of the Sun, which is not really this at all. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a like a semi autobiographical novel based on his own experiences growing up. And I think is is an outlier for him. He mostly wrote these weird uh, sci-fi and genre type things, but, um, that's certainly the most well-known. And I, I actually have not seen that movie, but it's definitely not known for car crash sex. Well, I have one interesting thing that I read, which was that yes. Roseanne Arquette was working on two movies and flying back and forth at the time of this. One was crash. The other was gone fishing. <laughs> 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 Imagine yeah. going back and forth on those characters, Josh. That is a testament to her abilities that she can uh, make that kind of switch like that and and do a good job. I guess in in both. I've never seen Gone Fishing, but I'm sure she's excellent in it. You know what they do in there? They they go fishing. Do they? Well, they've already gone. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of layers, Josh. It's complex. I'm sure we'll have yeah. to watch that and yeah. and really uh, parse that out. So. <laughs> So that's Crash, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on xvideos.com. No, but you mm -hmm. can follow us on social media. You can follow us on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram, J Harris Comedy on Twitter, and uh, goforjason.com, a much less popular website than xvideos.com. And uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, which does have an about section. And we are also at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us wherever you listen to this great podcast and follow us over on social media at Piecing Pod. What do we have on our next episode, Jason? Oh, Josh, it's the annual seasonal, every season, not annual, uh, audience choice winner. This season's poll was, but what I really want to do is direct. And it was about actors making their directorial debut. And not surprisingly, Mr. America, Tom Hanks, and that thing you do was the audience choice. So tune in next time for That Thing You Do. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.